0: Welcome back to Money & Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. I want to thank this week's sponsor, Prudential, for supporting the work of the show and making it possible for me to speak with innovators and, and leaders in the field, such as today's guest, Jasper van Brachel, the president and CEO of RSF Social Finance. RSF has two major product offerings, a uh, Social Investment Fund that provides loans directly to both for-profit and non-profit enterprises working to solve complex social and environmental problems, and they also have a donor-advised fund. Both the Social Investment Fund and the DAF help individuals and organizations align their portfolio with their values, the the former through investment and, and the latter through charitable giving. One of the ways that the RSF Social Investment Fund is particularly innovative, which we we get into during the conversation is the fact that for the past 12 years, they've set interest rates through quarterly meetings between investors, borrowers, and RSF as the intermediary. Instead of relying on market forces, the stakeholders gather around a table and come to an agreement on terms, creating more direct and transparent relationships between investors and, and borrowers. In addition to discussing these community pricing gatherings, Jasper and I talk about RSF's use of integrated capital, alternative ownership structures, their new racial justice collaborative, and how they're building participation into their funding processes. So let's jump into the conversation. Jasper, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Alex. My pleasure. So glad to be here.
0: Your organization, RSF Social Finance, has a a long history of working at the intersection of money and meaning. Can you give me a an overview of the history of the organization and the, the work that rsf does
1: absolutely so rsf has been around since the 80s actually so since way before impact investing was even a thing and all the way you know back to the 1980s we've been funding the change makers it really started out with a focus on education and that gradually expanded to include sustainable and organic food and agriculture and then later climate and the environment, and most recently a a much more conscious focus also on social and racial justice. Really what we do as an organization is three things. We provide loans, so lending is, is one of our key activities. We provide the opportunity for individuals and organizations to align their investments with their values so they can invest in our loan fund. And then there's giving, which is really the third leg of the stool We have donor advised funds at RSF and other philanthropic services that we provide to individuals and organizations so that they can align their giving with their values and and be really maximizing and optimizing their impact.
0: And who are the customers of RSF?
1: We have different groups of clients, really. So on the one hand, there are the investor clients um, who invest in our loan fund and in other funds that we have. But mainly uh, the social investment fund then we have borrowers who borrow out of that loan fund the social investment fund who are also clients and then we have donors who we provide philanthropic services for in the form of administering their donor advised funds and managing their grants so there are different groups of clients we we call them the money in clients and the money out clients and then of course there's also the grantees who are the recipients of the grants from the donor advisors, who we also view as clients, as uh, recipients of the funds.
0: So you, you mentioned that the, the loan fund has both the entrepreneurs that you support and the investors who buy notes in the fund. So RSF has two primary kind of product offerings, I would say, which are the, the loan fund and, and the donor advised fund. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. Yes.
0: Okay. How, how did you get started working in this space? What what led you to RSF?
1: Even though I'm educated as an economist, I am from the Netherlands originally, so went to school to study finance and economics and I spent a few years working in consulting in in financial institutions and then really pivoted to consumer goods and I worked for almost 14 years for a Swiss mission-first company called Walida, skincare, body care company, first in Germany, and then later as the CEO for North America. And when I was exchanging experiences with fellow CEOs and and founders in this space of socially responsible and environmentally responsible, really mission-first companies, what I heard was that folks were having real trouble attracting values-aligned capital and said you know we do this work all day long and it's what really drives us we're so passionate about it but then it's so hard to attract the right kind of money that actually wants that same thing that was the impetus for me to pivot to impact investing to working with a family office and in in private equity and then ultimately ending up at RSF social finance where we do lending, investing, and giving, and we work with about a hundred social enterprises. So it's, it's really wonderful to, to see money being activated for good so that it can support the change makers.
0: Interesting. So you've worked on the entrepreneurial side, you've worked on the investor side, you've worked in, in debt and equity with the private equity fund. So you've, you've covered a lot of ground in the, in the kind of social impact field.
1: Yeah, I, I have. And it's, it's not been linear. And that wasn't by design. But it it really gives me a window into the reality of what it's like to run a company, what it's like to operate in the mission space and to have to make decisions that both need to drive the business as well as drive the impact.
0: And you mentioned that there are about uh, 100 social enterprises you work with. I-, I believe that you lend to both for-profit and non-profit social enterprises, right?
1: Yes. About 50% of our borrowers are not-for-profits and about 50% are for-profits it's a distinction that isn't always very useful i think there's of course a a, you know a big difference from a tax treatment but 100 percent of the organizations that we work with are mission first whether they're for profit or not for profit and some are actually both a little bit of both and they have entities that are for profit or not for profit and it's a really interesting space to be in, to really work with those, the entrepreneurs and executive directors and the teams on the ground that are, that are making real change happen.
0: Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned that from your end as a lender, there's not really an important distinction between the two. I imagine, you know, you're, you're providing them with the same interest rates as long as they can kind of earn revenue to pay you back. You're interested more in the, the mission than in the, profit of the organization?
1: Absolutely, yes. We are primarily interested in the mission. The financials matter, of course, but the impact and the the mission alignment and the values alignment is the most important thing. Obviously, if if we're working with a not-for-profit, there is not an equity investment that's coming in alongside RSF. So the toolbox is a little bit different by nature of the type of organization that they are than if we're working with a for-profit company.
0: With the loan fund, the the RSF Social Investment Fund, in addition to the support that you provide for for all these social enterprises, you have a really innovative way of of setting interest rates. Can you tell us a little bit about that process?
1: So we've been doing this for 12 years. Every quarter, a self-selected group of investors in the fund, of note holders in the Social Investment Fund, as well as borrowers who have loans out of the fund, meet around a virtual or a literal round table together with us at at rsf and we discuss the interest rate for the next quarter so it's really a community conversation that we're having we call them community pricing gatherings because it's really the the community of economic actors that are impacted by the decisions that are being made that are meeting and so we ask our borrowers as well as the investors in the fund the question What is your economic reality and what would the impact be of an increase or a decrease of the interest rate that you either receive or pay, right? And then RSF as the intermediary is really in between. So we're, we're also a party here because the, the revenue share that RSF collects to cover our expenses and to do our work is also part of that equation. So all three parties have a conversation about price so we don't set our interest rate based on libor or have the invisible hand of the of the market determine that we're not immune to those forces obviously with that we we take them into account but it's really the community that's providing input for a pricing decision for the next quarter and you know, Alex, this, a, a lot of people um, have told me, yeah, that sounds really great. It's, a, you know, what a romantic idea. I wish it would work. <laughs> you know, it, we, we've done about 50 of those and it works, you know, it really does. We've actually found that in the 2008, 2009 economic crisis, as well as in the last year, year and a half, that that community coming together and talking about price is a risk mitigant. It doesn't make it more risky, it makes it less risky.
0: It's such a great example of, of stakeholder economics. What are the atmospheres like in, in those meetings? I mean, what, are they, what, what happens in the meetings generally?
1: It's really interesting because every single time there are investors, note holders who come to the table with the idea to advocate for a higher return for themselves. And there are always borrowers who come to the table with the idea that it would be great if we wrap up the meeting with a recommendation to lower the rate. And what always happens in every single meeting is that the tables turn and investors start asking the borrowers, well, wait a minute, what's your reality? And if I get more on my note, what's the impact going to be on your company or your nonprofit? What are you going to have to do if you need to pay more on your loan? And conversely, borrowers start asking investors the question, well, if we would pay less on our loan, which would help us, would you pull out your money from RSF? Because that wouldn't be in anybody's interest. We want you to be happy with the return that you make. So it's really interesting. And of course, we have a whole design of how to, to do those meetings that those questions become the key questions that are being asked in a community pricing gathering. And indeed, it's it's really stakeholder economics at work because it's not some anonymous, invisible market mechanism regulating this. It's really the actual players who are having a conversation about their actual needs and their reality on the ground.
0: It's such compelling evidence in favor of like storytelling in this space right or i guess by that i kind of mean like by reducing the gap from the the investor to the entrepreneur i think in a lot of the finance industry they're so far apart it's it's numbers on a on a computer screen it's not a person so you know it's a really great way to to bridge that gap
1: it's it's exactly that and that's how we see our role as intermediary to not be that invisible intermediary that in the end only looks to benefit ourselves right, and to milk left and right, but to really bring parties together so that the interdependencies become visible and the system can actually strengthen itself.
0: That's great. Have you seen other organizations start to adopt similar practices in the 12 or 13 years? Has your success doing this led to, to greater adoption in the field of this type of stakeholder economics?
1: Well, there's a lot of movement happening in the stakeholder economics and stakeholder governance space. And part of that is the cooperative movement that has really grown over the last decade. Also, the movement around alternative ownership, separating governance from the economic ownership. We've also seen a significant increase in those conversations as part of benefit corporations, public benefit corporations, I should say. So yes, there's a lot more happening around these same questions, and at the same time, I am not aware of a financial intermediary or any supply chain, for that matter, that is as radical as RSF is in actually using that stakeholder model to make pricing decisions.
0: You mentioned alternative ownership structures and and cooperatives and stakeholder governance, and you've been a pretty vocal advocate for. This area for for a while. Can you talk about what you're seeing and and why it's a lever for change that that you've targeted?
1: Yeah. so alternative ownership structures, or I'd, I'd like to talk about them as mission first structures, really try to recognize that as long as the primary objective of any company is to maximize their shareholder value, We're gonna see a lot of the same outcomes that we've created collectively over the past 100, 200 years. That by the way, has brought us a lot of positive things. And I'm a big proponent of what got us here won't get us there. So yes, it's brought us a lot and it's time now to shift gears. And that doesn't mean that shareholders don't deserve to have a vote. My point is really, they shouldn't be the only ones. Having a vote, and in a mission first structure, the governance is separated from the from the economic ownership, so that you can be a shareholder and benefit financially from being a shareholder, and the governance needs to be in the hands of the stakeholders that are impacted by, you know, most impacted by the company at hand. So that can be the employees. It can be the shareholders. It can be parts of the supply chain to be quite radical. One could even imagine having a board seat for the earth, right? For the planet. So these mission first ownership structures attempt to separate the economic ownership rights from the governance rights and saying, those are two separate things, ways in which companies are doing this really successfully is by establishing a not-for-profit, a foundation, for instance, that owns the shares in the company. And that's beholden to a mission that's much bigger than just making money. One example there is Bosch in Germany. I mean, it's a global company, but they've been around for a really, really long time. And they converted to this type of ownership in the 1960s. And It's hard to argue that they've not been competitive, right? So this is a highly competitive, very successful, very profitable business that was able to shift its governance from purely being shareholder maximization driven to just a lot broader being really mission driven. And other forms include golden share, for instance, that you have one share that has all the voting rights and that share is owned by a not for profit, a foundation, or by a trust. RSF has worked to help convert a company from a more traditional form to a perpetual purpose trust. It's a somewhat complicated structure, but in the end, what that means is that the voting shares are held in a trust, a perpetual trust, and the trustees are protecting the mission of the company, all the while enabling the company to still raise money, to issue equity, and also to be able to take on debt. So this is more of a systemic way of looking how we can not only fund the change makers, but also change the way that we fund. It's both and in that order for ourselves. So our mission is to fund the change makers and how we do that is also trying to bring about change. People sometimes ask me, so is it really impact investing that you do? In a way you could think about it that way what we're seeing is that a lot of impact investors um, are more or less traditional investors who like to invest in impact companies. Nothing wrong with that. But we do believe that it's important to not only invest in impact companies, but also change the way that we invest and change the way that we work with money so that money can be a tool for regeneration rather than continue to be a tool for just accumulation in the interest of the individual.
0: That's great. And, and as an intermediary, you have kind of a, a unique perspective on both the investor and the entrepreneur land. Right. Do, do you think yeah. that the past 18 months, the racial injustices and the the inequities that have been exposed by the pandemic, do, do you think they've led to an inflection point in the, the impact space? It seems like there's been an uptick in, in interest, certainly, where it's really moved into the mainstream. I mean, what are you... What are you seeing as an intermediary in the
1: space? Yeah, look, the racial injustices and social injustices that all of us became more aware of over the last year and a half aren't new, right? They've been around for a long time. So the inflection point, and the jury's still out, but I'm hopeful that this is an inflection point around consciousness, around awareness, around awakeness, just waking up to what is and what has been for a long time. And yes, horrible things have happened over the last year and a half and continue to happen and happened before then. The reason I'm optimistic about this being an inflection point of funders and the business world recognizing that we really have to step up and do something is that over the course of 2020 at RSF, we've seen that our donor-advised funds had a 72% payout ratio. That's almost double what it usually is, which is more than double what the industry average is anyway. So in any given year, the typical RSF donor flows a whole lot more money to the people and organizations that need it most. But we saw a huge uptick during the pandemic. And at around 50%, racial and social justice is already one of the key lenses with which people give at RSF. So that's one data point. Another data point though, is that the dollars in equity investments, VC and PE investments going to BIPOC entrepreneurs is still, you know, in the very low single digit range, it is a very, very low percentage, and this is one of the reasons that RSF established the Racial Justice Collaborative, which is something we we launched over the course of the past months. It is a philanthropic fund that seeks to deploy dollars specifically focused on racial justice and systemic exclusion and supporting BIPOC entrepreneurs and enterprises that directly support marginalized and BIPOC communities. Now, the funding itself is important. I also want to mention that... What's really important for us as an intermediary and as a financial organization, as a lender, as an investor, is that we also learn how to do that. That it's really important to connect with the communities that we're looking to support and recognizing that as long as the people in the room making the funding decisions are all white guys like me, then we are really missing the boat. And that is why... In the Racial Justice Collaborative, we invited four advisors who are much, much closer to the communities that we are looking to support to help us with deployment decisions, not only who we fund, but also how we fund. And that is a a learning experience that we're looking to really spread throughout the organization so that not only we're providing funding that's supporting the racial injustice, but we're also Learning from that, so that the other ways that we fund um, are inspired by those learnings as well. Yeah,
0: that's that's great to hear. We we talked recently about participatory funding on the podcast, so it's a really good example of of that kind of work. And the data point about the donor advised fund is encouraging too. I mean, as you're as you're well aware, you know, the biggest criticism of DAFs is the lack of kind of you know a mandated time frame for for granting out the capital so it's really encouraging to hear that when it's needed most that you know your donors are stepping up and and granting out that money
1: it is and we're a big proponent of making sure that the 142 billion dollars that's slushing around in donor advised fund accounts in the united states is both invested for impact which is kind of a no-brainer right this money is already charitable capital. So why not mandate that it be invested for impact? And of course, you need to also keep liquid assets in order to be able to meet funding needs, but to make sure that the investments are focused on impact, but also to make sure that there's a a payout minimum and the 5% that's there for private foundations isn't even there as a minimum for donor advised funds. This is really not something that we're worried about in our universe at RSF because, again, in a typical year, it's 40% and last year it was 72%. But uh, as an industry, it's really something for us to to think about.
0: You talked about some of the various tools that you have in, in your toolbox. You use debt, equity, um, guarantees, the the grants from the the donor-advised fund, which we just talked about you know, one of the advantages of having this, this variety of tools is that you're able to tailor support for the entrepreneurs or, or for different social and environmental causes to the specific issue or, or organization. I mean, how, how do you think about the use of integrated capital?
1: Yes, integrated capital is really one of the cornerstones of our approach to funding. And integrated capital, roughly defined, is the use of different forms of capital, to support a social enterprise so that they can have as much impact as they possibly can. And those different types of capital include financial monetary capital. So there's debt, there's equity, there's grants, but also the non-financial capital Uh, that's oftentimes overlooked. And when I look at the success stories, and there are many of them in the RSF portfolio of social enterprises that we work with or have worked with that social and network capital is really key. So one example is you know, we work with an organization that has a, a line of credit from us and they are looking to bring on equity investors that are really aligned with their mission and values. And in our network of donors, donor-advised fund clients, and the broader network that we have, our community, we're able to connect them the mission-aligned and values-aligned equity capital that they needed to get the equity infusion. There are several examples in which we're able to connect a social enterprise with a donor who has a donor-advised fund who's able to support with grant money. There are several examples of organizations that we work with social enterprises that we work with that have a loan out of the social investment fund and then for instance have a a recoverable grant or a straight grant out of one of rsf's thematic collaboratives which are philanthropic pools of capital that we can use in really creative ways to leverage the the capital in the social investment fund and also to really provide the kind of support that the social enterprise needs and sometimes a $10,000 technical grant is exactly what they need so that next year they can take on a million dollar line of credit. So that's the way we think about this. And one great example, a, a, a recent example is that we provided a loan to a school, a small school in the Pacific Northwest that was looking to buy a school building they weren't able to do so their community of, of parents and board members stood up they they provided part of the capital in the form of a loan and RSF came in with a mortgage and then last minute there was a $150,000 gap and the deal wasn't going to happen because it's that $150,000 that was lacking and we were able to meet that challenge by providing a recoverable grant so You know, something that basically works like a loan out of one of our collaborative funds. And so it's, this is a great example because it it illustrates that a community really wants this to happen. They're stepping up. We're providing a, a mortgage and then there's the integrated capital approach through collaborative funding that makes it all possible. And there are many examples like this also in the food space and across many industries.
0: Have you found that the specific tool that the organization needs, is it based on the the stage and, and business model of the organization, or, or are there certain social or environmental challenges that, that require a certain type of financial tool consistently?
1: Yeah, well, it's a huge generalization, but there certainly are differences across industry verticals. So consumer packaged goods companies... Oftentimes require a line of credit as they are growing and expanding, whereas maybe not-for-profit organizations may require more, you know, something more in the line of a term loan or a mortgage, a real estate loan. Then in in the food and agriculture space, we do have quite some loans for equipment, for instance. And then it's really interesting um, in moving more into the environment and climate solutions, um, especially when you get into energy, solar, etc. There's a huge need for longer term commitments and for a loan to not be a 12-month revolving line of credit, but for a 10 or 20-year or maybe even 30-year term loan. So there's a, a very different timeline there that's necessary because of the nature of the underlying asset and because of the nature of the underlying impact um, that we're trying to make possible.
0: Is there anything that I haven't asked you that that you'd like to mention before we we sign off? Anything that you're particularly excited about and want to share?
1: There are two things that I'm very excited about and that we're working on today that I would love to share with your audience. Um, One is activating the dollars in the donor-advised funds before they're granted out as part of an integrated capital concept so how can we collectively in the industry unlock a significant portion of that 142 billion dollars so that it can go towards investments in and loans to the change makers the impact organizations who by the way ultimately will be the recipients of the grants so that's something that i'm incredibly excited about and and that we're working on it's it's really unlocking that philanthropic capital so that it can have impact even before it's granted out the second thing i'm really excited about is the establishment of a guarantee pool within the social investment fund the rsf social investment fund does senior secured lending and that means that there needs to be some assets some collateral behind a loan and In particular, when we fund the change makers who have been systemically excluded themselves and, or who are serving a community that's been systemically excluded or marginalized, then there may not be that collateral or asking for the collateral may not be the right thing, just morally speaking. So in raising $10 million into a guarantee pool we're gonna be able to really leverage um, the other $140 million that's in the social investment fund by providing secure, senior secured debt to social entrepreneurs and social enterprises who are unable to, or who we don't wanna ask to come up with the assets to safeguard that loan. Those are two things that we're working on at the moment. And I'm really excited about activating those dollars so that they can really, make change possible, systemic change in the world. That's what we're all about.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. The the guarantee pools are such a a great way of really catalyzing additional investment into, you know, areas of need by by kind of de-risking just just slightly changing that risk return profile for, you know, for interested investors. So that's encouraging to hear about. Jasper, thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciated learning more about about RSF Social Finance and and all the great work that that you're doing.
1: Thanks, Alex. I so appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Money & Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Jasper Van Brachel of RSF Social Finance. If you want to learn more about RSF, their social innovation fund, the community pricing gatherings, or anything else that we discussed on today's episode, check out our website at socapglobal.com, where we will provide additional resources for anyone who, who wants to learn more. I want to thank Dave Leshansky, who is the producer of the show, for all the great work that he does. Sarah Grelnick-McClurg from ThinkShift Communications for suggesting Jasper as a guest, and Prudential, who sponsored this week's episode for for supporting the work that we're doing here on Money & Meaning. For the next episode, we will have Christina Shapiro, the president of UNICEF's Impact Fund for Children. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.